Hello everyone, my name is C.A. Grayson. Uh, most of you know me as Gray. Welcome to this week's episode of the Haunting Hour podcast. Today is our creepy urban legend episode. Now, if you're new to my podcast, first of all, welcome. I alternate between audio horror stories written by yours truly, we also cover unsettling urban legends, creepypastas, and real-life experiences of the unknown. I will try my best to get one episode released every week for you guys, and of course, I'm going to slowly migrate my content over to YouTube. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my day job is completely different from my podcast. I actually own an AC company based out of Texas that sells parts and equipment to homeowners. Uh, my other YouTube actually is an educational one that teaches both new technicians and homeowners how to diagnose and repair their own units. So, as you can see, it's completely different from the content that I release to all of you. Uh, it's, this is basically a break from the day-to-day -day technical problem-solving that is my life. Especially, so being a business owner is both time-consuming and mentally exhausting. Uh, however, equally rewarding. Uh, if you have issues with your own AC uh, this summer, feel free to actually check them out on YouTube. Our channel is called Open to Public HVAC School. If you go to www.youtube.com forward slash at Open to Public HVAC School, uh, we will pop up. They're completely free. And basically, they're simply my experiences and knowledge passed over to all of you. Anyway, shameless plugs aside, let's move on to the show. This week, we will be covering urban legends such as The Montauk Project, Mercy Brown, The Rhode Island Vampire, all the way down to my home state, the Candy Lady of Texas, the Red Room Curse, and finally, Candyman. I think I might have been hungry when I started researching these. Uh, I actually just noticed that two of them are about candy. But anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get to our spine-tingling creepy tales. Stories about the Montauk projects have circulated since the 1980s, but to some, these stories are anything but a joke. Although the stories began circulating in the 1980s, they didn't begin taking hold of the public until 1992 which was roughly about 11 years after the military base at Camp Hero was shut down. You can find author Preston Nichols' book, The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, online, 
which covered such horrific accounts of government conspiracies, including tampering with children's DNA, testing for psychic abilities, and even stories about kidnapping children and homeless children. And while many mock the accounts of these stories with good reason, considering it has been debunked for several years now, there are some who wholeheartedly believe and insist that they are in fact very real. Especially an individual by the name of Joe Lafreno. Lafreno, who is now 56 years old, uh, grew up in Montauk and has been searching for answers to his own terrifying recollections of past events. He claims that he was in fact one of the boys who were captured and experimented on with Nichols' book. Lafreno insists that he didn't believe it himself until around four years ago. Something had been tickling the back of his brain, and so finally he decided to visit a hypnotist to see if he could find some of these answers. When interviewed by the New York Post, uh, he says, I was hypnotized for about 40 minutes, and all these memories flooded back. They did a very bad thing to us out there. We were just little kids. They had no right to experiment on us. It was a very dark, very evil thing. Lafreno goes on to say that he was taken during the summer of 1980, and then possibly again in 1981. Now, at the time, he would have been 12 or 13 years old, during his hypnosis session, Lafreno mentions that there was another boy that invited him to go biking uh, and explore the base. He recalled that the first time he arrived, there were two men waiting for him. Uh, they were dressed in normal clothing and told the children to follow them into a sunken house that was located on the base and later they were relocated to an underground area uh, that went through battery 113. 113 was one of these sealed gunneries that was left over from World War II. His creepy accounts of lying on tables with wires and electrodes stuck to him, which came from his body, being tortured and also experimented on like animals is eerily similar to Nazi stories from years prior. As many as 50 children were present that he could recall, and Lafreno is also of the opinion that some of the children were later killed. And while many of us could write this man's stories off as nothing more than an attempt at 15 minutes of fame, or that he has a few screws loose, get this. Filmmaker Christopher Garitano who lives just outside of Montauk, became so enthralled by the stories 
that he filmed a documentary over it by the name of the Montauk Chronicles. The film goes into many detailed accounts of three men, a Stuart Swerdlow, Al Bielek, and Preston Nichols about being brainwashed and forced to be a part of these sadistic experiments between the years of 1971 and 1983. However, Garitano discounts these men's stories and claims that they are nothing more but a work of fiction. Still, Garitano was so fascinated by the area that he actually hired a geophysicist to survey the area surrounding the camp. Now, to their surprise, they did reveal that there were large structures beneath the surface that are not found on any official maps. He was quoted saying, Forget all the alien and MK Ultra, which is known as a CIA mind control experiment. Um, I think it was from the 1950s, maybe even 60s. Um, uh, crap. He says, I think there was some type of experimentation out there using kids or teenagers, maybe even runaways from New York. And you know what? I'm inclined to believe Garitano, and here's why. So Camp Hero was actually home to both the army during World War II and then also the U.S. Air Force Base during the Cold War before it was finally decommissioned around 1981. Uh, but now it is owned by the state parks and uh, sits on nearly 755 acres of land. That is huge. Sitting on this land is one of the last Cold War era SAGE or S-A-G-E radar towers uh, in existence. These were originally designed to give the area, you know, the town a 30-minute notice of any incoming nuclear attacks from Soviet Russia during the Cold War. And here's the interesting fact, okay? These towers were even said to emit up to 425 megahertz, which is rumored to be the frequency needed to enter human consciousness. Even the locals who are discounting the underground kind of bunkers or facilities, um, they admitted to have experienced interference with their electronics and phones, and many others recall having these awful headaches when the tower had been up and running. So, could this all just be a coincidence? Or, could there be merit to some of the experiments conducted by the U.S. government? Well, I encourage you to dive deeper into this mystery for yourselves, because there is far more to this story than just what I've covered here. So, is this real? Well, I'll leave it up to you to decide. 
Now on to the more creepier side of our podcast. Uh, We're moving over to the story of Mercy Brown, who is known as the Rhode Island Vampire. Our tragic story begins with a young woman by the name of Mercy Brown. We all know about the time uh, when the Salem witch trials and uh, superstitions about witches were wildly popular, but did you know that towns were also very superstitious about vampires? So, Mercy Brown was the unfortunate soul that had both her mother and her sister die of tuberculosis in her childhood. So, not long after that, she herself contracted the disease and at only 19 years old, finally passed away on January 17th of 1892. Even though at this point, we were beginning to learn about viruses and disease, superstitions were still taken very seriously from the old world. Uh, So serious, in fact, that due to all the death surrounding Brown's family, locals were actually convinced that witchcraft or the undead was the cause. So after the poor woman's body was exhumed uh, and then examined, upon inspecting her body, the townsfolk thought that she was too well preserved and saw that there was truth in their own superstitions. So basically the entire town of Exeter, Rhode Island uh, decided that It would be best to remove both Mercy Brown's heart and liver and then proceed to burn them to ashes. But wait, there's more. As if that wasn't horrible and weird enough for her surviving father George Brown and brother Edwin, they took the ashes, mixed it with water to create a kind of tonic, and fed them to Edwin. Now, Edwin was sick at the time with consumption, that's what they called it back then, which is tuberculosis. Uh, They were under the belief that by doing so, he would be cured of this illness. It was such a popular story that the author of Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker, Uh, was inspired by this story, and so he created the character Lucy Westenra in his novel. Um, To this day, the locals around Exeter uh, say that Mercy Brown's ghost still haunts their cemetery. And I mean, really? Could you blame her? I'd be mad too. This next horrifying urban legend is known as the Candy Lady of Texas. Now, this is actually not too far from me. Uh, It's outside of Dallas um, to the east, and it's a town known as Terrell, Texas. So, allegedly, there was a woman by the name of Clara Crane. And if you think about that, that almost sounds like a supervillain name. I don't know. Kind of cool if you ask me. Her name. 
not what she did uh, back in 1895. Let's just make note that I'm not condoning murder here, people. Just saying the name is cool. Yeah. Anyway, Clara laced her delicious caramel delights with a poison that ultimately ended her poor husband's life. She believed that he had something to do with the passing of their daughter a few years before. Many believed that this was her motivation for committing the heinous deed. Clara was then placed in a mental institution, then known as North Texas Lunatic Asylum, now named Terrell State Hospital for, well, obvious reasons. Lunatic does sound more fun, but I suppose it doesn't sound very nice to the people that are being rehabilitated there. But I don't know. I think I'd have fun putting that on a resume once I got my shit together. But that's just me. So according to local legend uh, that's been circulating in the early 20th century uh, to even today, children began to go missing near her old property. The locals believed that she would leave candy on the child's windowsill while they were sleeping, trying to lure them out so she could grab them. Some children would even find notes on the wrapped candy. The odd part about this is that several children started going missing, and the people believed that it was Clara who was responsible for this. Creepier still, a local farmer found rotting teeth in his fields. A deceased child was found with candy wrappers in his pockets. And a town sheriff's body was discovered with candy shoved in his pockets as well. And his eyes poked out with forks. But there were some children that actually admitted to eating the candy that they found on their windowsill. Um... Talk about lucking out. These must have been the ones that ate them in the daylight. Because we all know that only spooky things happen at night time. Right? Right. More than likely, this is another one of those cautionary tales told by parents for their children to not take things from strangers. Or, you know, to not go out at night. There's something eerie in the way that if these murders were recorded to actually happen, could it have been Clara Crane? Or was it someone inspired by her story to commit their own heinous crimes? Hmm. I'll let you be the judge of that. Ah. Uh, Candyman. A great segue to come over from the candy lady to the candy man. Candyman was a gem of a movie that was originally released in October of 1992. The movie was inspired by a short story called The Forbidden 
written by legend Clive Barker, and then adapted for film and directed by Bernard Rose. You know, Clive Barker, the guy that wrote horror and fantasy novels, as well as providing writing and sometimes directing his own films, such as Hellraiser, Nightbreed, Underworld, and Jericho, just to name a few. So why are we talking about Clive Barker? While the urban legend surrounding Candyman does sound suspiciously like Bloody Mary, where you call out his name three times in front of the mirror, and then of course he'll come out and murder you. Well, this legend is actually based off of a horrifyingly true story. A few years prior, Barker was inspired by the news story published by the Chicago Reader in 1987. Uh, Ruthie McCoy, who was a resident of Chicago's Abbott Holmes housing project, uh, in one of the properties known for its cheap and bad building designs, had made a frantic call to 911, insisting she was being attacked in her apartment. So, a little bit about uh, McCoy. Okay, she was 52 years old at the time, and she had problems with paranoia. Um, she was afraid for her life constantly. And of course, because she had a little bit of a, a mental illness going on, she wasn't really thrilled about living in the kind of place she did. Um, these sorts of places, the lights weren't working half the time, the elevators broke down constantly, uh, these big, tall, cold buildings. Um, she lived in one of the seven uh, 15-story brown Y-shaped towers, and these were called the Grace Abbott Homes. You also could find such amenities as pitch black stairwells, cocaine and PCP addicts on nearly every floor, where murders were pretty much a common occurrence every day. So to say that uh, horrible things happened on a daily basis and no one blinked an eye, well, that's pretty true, and where the horrifying part of this story comes in. So around a quarter to nine o'clock uh, in an April evening, um, Chicago police got a 911 call from Ruth, and she just starts out with, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and of course, which is known as the project area. And, you know, people nearby knew that she was kind of mentally disturbed. Uh, of course, the police didn't know that. The dispatcher didn't know that. So that's why this next part is sort of baffling. So she tells them, you know, I'm a resident and some people next door are totally, quote unquote, tearing this down, you know. And um, the dispatcher says, well, what are they doing? And her response is kind of unintelligible if you listen to the recording. 
you know, he says, they want to break in. And she's like, yeah, they threw the cabinet down. And the dispatcher's like, from where? And then she explains, you know, I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach my bathroom. And they want to come through my bathroom. And so he asks her to repeat what address. And so she says her address again, her apartment number 1109. And she says the elevator's working. So I think that's funny that she actually had to, okay, the whole situation's not funny, but I think it's funny that she had to mention that. I mean, that just goes to show how run down the place was. Like, oh, by the way, the elevator's working this time. But in any case, he repeats 1109. All right, what's your name? She gives her name and the dispatcher says, I'll send the police. So here's where the dispatcher messed up. He wasn't sure for some reason what Ruth was trying to report and what she was even talking about when she said they threw the cabinet down because someone couldn't just tear down the wall and the medicine cabinet comes out. You know, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? In any case, he closed the phone call in order to send a cop to her residence. And all he told them was there was a disturbance. He didn't tell them that someone was breaking into her apartment. It was just a disturbance in the neighborhood. And the cops know that area. They know that there's tons of horrible things that happen constantly, you know, people getting shot, um, children being murdered, which is absolutely awful, uh, violence, all kinds of things. So the police knew that area and they knew it was going to be another routine act of violence. So they didn't really rush to get there because they had no idea it was a break-in. That's pretty much why... Everyone thinks that the police didn't arrive to Ruthie McCoy's apartment until 9.02. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of time. You know, most responders now, especially here in Dallas, because we're so spread apart, you know, 15 minutes, that's pretty average for most police officers. They started to find out that more strange things was happening because another 911 call came in concerning Ruthie's apartment. And this one was from a woman who said she'd been walking through the hallway and heard gunshots coming from the apartment. And then two minutes later, another neighbor called to report gunshots and yelling from 1109. At that point, two more police cars headed to the scene. You know, it's beyond my understanding of how procedures worked back then, but remember, this was like almost 40 years ago. It's 1987, right? So four officers apparently arrived at McCoy's door, and around 10 minutes after 9, they pounded on the door, they announced their presence, they called for um, Ruthie, and she didn't answer. So they then asked the dispatcher to call McCoy on her phone. And they say, we think somebody may be in there holding somebody, basically meaning holding them hostage. From the other side, the officers, all they could hear was the phone just ringing and ringing and ringing. And then there were two more officers downstairs and they drove over to the project office a block away on the street Loomis 
uh, to actually get the key to 1109. But unfortunately, the key didn't fit McCoy's lock. Seeing as how McCoy was already a paranoid person, um, both with reason <laughs> because of her poor surroundings, but she was because she was so paranoid, she more than likely changed her locks. This left the officers wondering what they should do. Should they break into the apartment? And, you know, talking with neighbors didn't help much. Those people didn't trust police officers much at all, so you weren't going to get a lot out of them to begin with. And also, nobody knew what had happened. They hadn't seen someone break in. And, you know, they weren't sure if she was just having some sort of mental episode or what was happening. So the only thing that they told them was an elderly woman lived in 1109. And they said she always answered her doors. So um, one of the officers told the dispatcher, there's no answer. So I don't know if maybe she answered to the wrong person or what. The officers contacted the project office again, but the janitor there said he had no other key for 1109. Finally, about 10 till 10, the police left her building. It wasn't until the following evening that police got a call from uh, Deborah Laisley. Um, I think it's how you pronounce it, Lasley, Laisley. In any case, she was an 11th floor neighbor of McCoy's. She said that Miss McCoy normally stopped by her apartment on her way out of the building every morning. So at this point, you know, they're becoming more and more alarmed because she was fairly social uh, with her neighbors. But that day, she hadn't come by at all. At that point, about uh, six or so officers and some security guards arrived on the scene. So even more disturbing, the security guards actually told the police officers not to break down the door. So one of them raised the possibility of the tenant suing uh, if the police broke in which, you know, wasn't completely unheard of back then, basically telling him, hey, if you break down the door, she might have grounds to sue. You know, you'll have to get someone up here to secure it. The following day, so we're on day two at the point that the woman had called and said her life was in danger, but no one could get into her apartment. Finally, the, you know, the second day, Lasley notified the project office of her concerns. So about 1 p.m. in the afternoon that day, a project official finally showed up at McCoy's door with a carpenter who actually had to drill through the lock. They found McCoy in the bedroom, lying on her side in a pool of her own blood. Papers, magazines, um, coins, all kinds of things were just strewn all over the place. Uh, and, you know, like a tornado had hit the room. Finally, when police later turned McCoy slightly, they knew she'd been there for a bit because the, you know, that rotting smell of uh, decay was very present. And it doesn't take long for a body to start decomposing after you've passed away. So 
apparently she had been shot four times. Okay, she'd been shot in her shoulder, her left thigh, the right side of her abdomen, which pierced her liver, and the fourth bullet that ultimately killed her uh, passed through her right upper arm, then entered her chest and actually severed her pulmonary vein. More than likely, she didn't die right away. The authorities said that when the autopsy was performed, she probably wouldn't have made it, but we'll never know because everyone refused to go into the apartment. So the strange thing about this was that even then, even having gone into her apartment, they didn't realize how the assailants had gotten in the room because her front door was, you know, intact. Her windows were shut. Like this, this was just an odd mystery. So all of a sudden her story became newsworthy when the Tribune did run a brief story on the McCoy murder. Uh, They ran this on June 10th after apparently a second suspect had been arrested and indicted. So the killing apparently had been made newsworthy because of one new fact. Detectives had finally determined, and the Tribune had reported in the story's lead, that McCoy's killers had entered her apartment through her medicine cabinet. They had removed the cabinet from the adjacent apartment, broke through or entered through her cabinet, climbed through the wall into her apartment. So she had heard all this. She'd attempted to call the police. You know, someone else had attempted to call 911. And then a third call. So it it took two days, two days after that call at, you know, 9 p.m. that evening before anyone could get in the apartment because her very own form of paranoia ended up being what kept her in there. Now, could they have broken in? Yeah, probably. But because of the possible idea that they could have been sued or that maybe there wasn't much that could be done in any case because of everyone's sort of indifference and the fact that she changed her locks without notifying anyone ultimately led to her death. But if you think about that, that really plays on our fears, right? The fact that we couldn't control that And the fact that someone went through your medicine cabinet and killed you. This is like boogeyman stuff of horrors, which is how it ended up inspiring Clive Barker to write this story. Because sometimes real life is scarier than horror. And last, but certainly not least, one of my favorite modern urban legends is the Red Room Curse. 
The Red Room curse has had many different variations circulating throughout Japan, but the most common is that if you seek the Red Room online, it will find you. You'll be on your computer when suddenly a pop-up appears. It will have text with a red background that asks, Do you like the Red Room? which is now said to be accompanied by a sinister voice asking the same questions. If you've ever been pranked before, uh, which this has happened to me some years ago, uh, no matter how many times you try to close the window, it'll keep popping up. <laughs> Boy, it's been years since that's happened. Even while you do this, it will continue to appear until the voice has finished asking its question. Now, once it gets in its words, your entire screen will turn red and become flooded with past victims' names and in some versions of the stories, horrible pictures of its past victims. No one's sure of what happens after you see this because the victim dies right after. The receivers of this pop-up are always found dead with their blood painting the walls red, thus creating the aptly named Red Room. Now, just like all modern urban legends, once you receive this ominous message, it's impossible to escape your fate. Uh, it's always been a popular story, but it really gained traction uh, when an 11-year-old girl by the name of Sasebo Nagasaki stabbed her classmate to death at school. Apparently, the young killer had been a fan of the Red Room urban legend. Thank you for joining me on this terrifying urban legend podcast. Season 2, Episode 3 of the Haunting Hour Podcast. Join me next time as we dive into our next series of urban legend tales. Now, for most of you, you know that I create um, horror podcasts, but you can also visit my website at C.A. Grayson, Grayson spelled G-R-E-Y-S-O-N dot com. There you can find short stories, novellas, and novels that I also release on my writing collections. So if you're a fan of sci-fi and horror, you can find all of my writings there. As I'd mentioned earlier in the podcast, I will be slowly migrating over to YouTube. Um, I really like that platform, 
And I also really enjoy making podcasts. So why not marry the two and do something different and exciting, shake it up a bit, and hopefully have many more releases this coming year. Thanks again, everyone. And until next time, pleasant dreams.